This episode covers some heavy topics, including pedophilia and suicide. We don't go into details, but please take care as you listen. You are now listening to Undercurrents. My name is Ken Ogasawara, and I'm part of the community engagement team at Mennonite Central Committee in Ontario. This podcast is an ongoing experiment to find a new way to tell the stories coming from our community of partners, program participants, donors, and others. Undercurrents is brought to you by Kindred Credit Union. Kindred's purpose is cooperative banking that connects values and faith with finances, inspiring peaceful, just, and prosperous communities. Kindred believes in and supports restorative justice and the conflict resolution it promotes in its operations and in its communities. This episode is about Chuck. I honestly believe that I would most likely not be alive today had I not been arrested and charged and gone through this process. This is Chuck, which is not his real name. If you listen to the previous episode, you'll remember Chuck's father, John, sharing his story of what it was like for him and his wife to find out their son, Chuck, was attracted to minors and had been charged with possession of child pornography. We heard from John's perspective. Now, we'll hear from Chuck himself. I was in a really dark place before I got arrested. Um, so I was uh, divorced. I was... Um, like separated from my family, uh, living on my own for a good three years. And um, that's a dangerous place for, for someone with pedophilia um, is to live alone and to have the privacy to do things um, that you wouldn't otherwise have trying to live a normal life. I was in a downward spiral and they talk about it in therapy, the, the slippery slope. Um, and that's part of my recovery too, is um, understanding all the things that I do that uh, make myself um, more prone to uh, having uh, a relapse or reoffense. Some of those signs were A, drinking alcohol. Um, I, I'd be drinking alcohol pretty much every chance I could get other than being at work. I was on permanent night shifts, and I that's all I wanted was night shifts. But I did my grocery shopping at 3 in the morning, and I just wanted to be as uh, secluded from the world as much as possible. Yeah, my depression was, was probably at its worst uh, in around those, those days. Um, my fast food addiction was, was out of control, so I was pretty much having just fast food and, and alcohol for the most part. I welcome triggers like I would, you know, I'd be watching like teenage kind of girly shows um, just for the for the eye candy and the, the triggers um, that come with it. Chuck's father had encouraged him to seek counseling. And as a matter of fact, Chuck had gone to a few tentative sessions with the therapist before his benefits ran out. But for most men in Chuck's position, seeking help is easier said than done. Consider the challenges. First, they have to admit to themselves that they have a problem. This is a huge psychological hurdle on its own, and one that Chuck admits he struggled with. 
Nobody wants to admit they are attracted to minors, even to themselves. But to disclose this shameful secret to someone else is another giant leap. And if it's to a health professional, there is a perceived risk. And this is where the often misunderstood concept of duty to report comes in. I can clarify what the duty to report is, but as it applies to uh, minor attracted people, it's, it's complex. This is Andrea Bevan. She started working with people who had offended sexually nearly 20 years ago after working in the parole system. Andrea is a social worker and therapist who specializes in working with people who have deviant sexual attractions. Within Ontario, Child Youth Family Services uh, Act under Section 125 spells out a number of, of conditions under which, you know, professionals and other people must uh, report either, um, you know, children who have experienced abuse or those children who may be at risk of experiencing abuse. And I think more so it's that at-risk piece that causes the most difficulty for people when dealing with minor attracted persons. It's not an easy thing. I can't just say to you that if somebody comes in and discloses to me that they have an interest or that they're fantasizing about children, I don't say, wait a minute, I'm going to pick up the phone now and call Family and Children's Services or Children's Aid Society. So it's, again, every situation is is really unique. And I, and I go back to, you know, this idea of, you know, is there an imminent harm? What is the real risk? You know, we know that there are a lot of people who, you know, have uh, interests in children who never act on it. So the very fact of, of just having an interest doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to act upon it or that you're going to place it or that there's going to be a child at, at risk. So it's, it's really, you know, Ken, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to be able to say to you in every, in every kind of situation, this is exactly what's going to happen. If I, more often than not, if I have somebody who comes in where there's been no um, history of offenses and there's just been some, some thinking around it, if they engage in therapy and, and really make those efforts to um, manage those, those thoughts, and perhaps we've, uh, you know, involved other uh, support people in their life and, and things like that, I may not need to make those calls. Unfortunately, the majority of treatment for minor attracted people happens reactively. In other words, after an abuse has already occurred or the law has been broken. It's also important to remember that having an attraction to minors does not by itself break the law. However, acting on that attraction, like Chuck did when he ordered child pornography, is where lawful lines are crossed. Chuck was arrested and charged with possession of child pornography. As his father, John, relates in the previous episode, this was rock bottom for both his parents and Chuck himself. Chuck was deemed a high risk for suicide at this point. But somewhere in the depths of this painful time, there was a part of Chuck that recognized that this might finally be the wake-up call he needed. There's no question I was I was guilty of my crime, and I wasn't gonna ever even contemplate uh, not pleading guilty. Um, when my lawyer presented me with um, 
what the crown was going after um as far as sentencing goes it's um they were proposing six to nine months I knew I needed therapy, a lot of therapy. I, I knew I needed help. Going to jail, as much as it is as a punishment, I just w- wasn't going to be getting the help I needed. Chuck had heard good things about the Ontario Correctional Institute, or OCI as it's called, for its thorough psychiatric and therapy-based rehabilitation program for Ontario male offenders. The problem was that Chuck's potential sentence of six to nine months was at risk of being too short to qualify for OCI. So Chuck did something very unusual. He requested a longer sentence. And it was it was a hard decision. I mean, to ask for more time, it was really, um, I was really scared to go into jail, obviously. Um, it, um, I knew it wasn't going to be a good time. <laughs> I knew it uh, was going to be a rough ride. Even when you get to OCI, even if you do get a, you know, approved to go to OCI, um, it's it's very easy for them to send you back into jail if you uh, if you disobey any of their rules or whatnot. So there's no guarantee that even if you make a dosi, you're even going to last there. I think when I went into OCI, I uh, I was still playing the victim card. I think I think I was still in the self pity mode where. Uh, I, you know, I, I felt sorry for myself that here, here I am. I lost my job. I lost my um, career. Um, I didn't have a lot of empathy for my victims, and I didn't even think I had any victims. To be honest with you, I just, I, I really downplayed my role. That I, I'm just a guy, you know, that was caught um, downloading child pornography and viewing it. And uh, to me, that was. Um, a lot less than um, actually doing harm to a child. and uh, But that's really not the case, and that's something I really did learn, and that hit me hard at OCI was um, just viewing um, child pornography is victimizing that victim again, and um, there's really no, no difference than for me being in the room versus... Um, being a person watching cowardly from home, um, you're just as guilty. And thinking back at my past and thinking of, of who I was before um, I got all this treatment at OCI, it really, it really disgusts me, the, the person I was and the things I was doing. So when did I realize I was a pedophile? I think... Um, I mean, a pedophile is such a, 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 a really nasty word, and it's something that, um, I mean, nobody ever wants to admit that they are a pedophile if, if they are one. <laughs> as far as we know, there is no cure for pedophilia, and that's, that's the thing that makes it the hardest, is, um, is knowing that that feeling that I have and that, that desire that I have may never go away. And um, it's always going to be a, um, an, un, an unsatisfying thing to, to go through life. Not that I'm saying that that's boohoo for me, but it's, you know, people with normal sexual 
uh, appetites can can quench that that appetite, and someone who suffers with pedophilia uh, can never um, they have to abstain from that forever, and uh, that's where it becomes a challenge. That's where it becomes a mental health problem because it causes your depression. It causes your um, your hate for yourself. Pedophilia is an evil, and it is something that um, um, you need to get out of your out of your body. Chuck takes pains to emphasize how unacceptable pedophilia is, calling it evil, but at the same time acknowledging that for him, it's not a choice. He was cursed with an attraction that he must not fulfill, an innate part of him that disgusts him, but that he must reconcile within himself. I don't use the words evil and and the, and that type of thing when I'm when I'm working with people. And you know, I, I have fellows that will you know use those terms. You know, we we do explore that. We do you know sort of examine. You know, is that fair? Is that compassionate towards you to think of yourself as an evil person? Right. It's kind of that all or nothing thinking again. That because of this one aspect of my life that somehow I'm this, you know, bad person. Some of the guys I work with, you know, have this really long history of self-loathing, um, you know, towards themselves and, and this whole, you know, really destructive relationship with their self. Chuck falls into this category. After a lot of therapy, he has identified several traumatic incidences with his peers from when he was around 12 years old that were sexual in nature and contributed to his poor mental health and depression later in life. We won't unpack that here, but it's worth mentioning because, to paraphrase addiction specialist Dr. Gabor Maté, the first question is not, why the abuse? It's, why the pain? This is where therapy can truly be life-changing. I generally find, um, e even for some of those folks, that when they come in to even talk about something where they haven't had that opportunity before, it can be, again, can give them a sense of relief and can um, almost give them a sense of their humanity back because the opportunity to be up actually, you know, sit down with someone and to be able to talk about this stuff and, and to, to be proactive and to talk about strategies and all of that stuff. You know, it, it takes it away from being this, you know, this entity that's sort of uncontrollable and, um, you know, needs to be all that they identify with. I like the word strategy that Andrea applies here. It removes any of the self-sabotaging, self-judgment and morality from the matter and breaks it down to problem solving. Here's the problem. How do we deal with it? Chuck's strategy involves building multiple pillars of support. In addition to ongoing therapy sessions, he takes medication that all but eliminates his sex drive. It is a drastic solution, but Chuck is deeply grateful for it. Another pillar of Chuck's foundation is family, but this one is complicated. My relationship with my kids, um, I, I wasn't really a very strict dad to them. I was very uh, easygoing and... Um, I think I was more of a friend to them than I was a parent. And um, that causes issues, I think, with, um, you know, doing the parenting with with uh, with your wife. Um, you need to be on the same page. And uh, um, 
my wife and I were not on the same pages on a lot of things, but um, I, I was good at, at the entertainment factor with my kids. I was good at um, taking them to the movies and taking them to uh, hockey games and taking them bowling and taking them. So I was really like the fun dad and just uh, I spent a lot of money um, taking them places and just doing things like that. I was able to hide my sexual uh, disorder and my, you know, that's something that uh, they had no clue going into this um, when I got arrested and whatnot. Um, for them to see their dad go to jail and uh, and being charged with, the, with those charges, um, it was pretty, pretty bad. The, the, the damage that's been done to my kids and my relationship with my kids it is forever scarred and forever um, damaged, and um, I don't think there's any recovery from that. So it, it's a tough pill to swallow, and I, I can't imagine what my kids have gone through, and I can't imagine what they think of me today and what um, what is to come, if, if anything. So as it stands today, um, my oldest child uh, has already said to me that he um, does not want me in his life. And um, he says that he forgives me, but doesn't want any part in, in his future. Um, and um, that, that's, that's tough to, to take. And that's, that's probably the, the hardest punishment you can possibly get. Um, I've let my kids know that um, I'll always love them. I'll always want to be with them. I always want to spend time with them. And I have nothing but love for them. And I understand that um, being being a parent is both a you know it's a responsibility, but it's also it is also a privilege. And I'm just grateful for the, the time I had to spend with my kids and that. Um, All I can do, all I can do is be a better person and hope that one day they will accept me in their life again. My relationship with my parents is by far way closer than it has ever been. It's it's amazing how close it's brought the family together and to realize what's important in life. And um, this whole experience, um, as much as I screwed up and as much as I uh, had to go to jail and, and do my time and, and whatnot, it's I think it's made me a better person today. And it's um, I think my parents uh, like and my brother and sister too, they, they like the person that they see right now. There's no question that um, I am a, a better person today than I was before. Despite this growing foundation, 
Chuck is still living in a world that largely wants nothing to do with him. I asked Andrea how the gap could be bridged between society that reviles minor attracted people and those that work to support these individuals. Where is the common ground? So I think we can all kind of come together over a common goal of preventing further abuse. So if we work from this place of, you know, sort of shared responsibility around, you know, no more victims, you know, what does that look like? I mean, our our research and the literature is really clear um, around what are the factors that increase somebody's risk of committing another offense or of perhaps acting out, um, you know, on on a particular attraction. Things like isolation, um, you know, things like... um, you know, not being accepted, um, all of those basic human needs. When we deprive people of basic human needs, we're going to see maladaptive coping. So if we're coming together over this idea of how do we prevent this, there has to be, um, you know, the, the idea that we can't isolate these folks. That needs to be understood and I think needs to be accepted. Now, that's going to look different for other for some people okay and so that might just mean um you know we're not going to ostracize people i've had clients who've had their houses picketed i've had you know community rallies and all sorts of things and and all that does is drive people underground and contributes to you know uh, diminished mental health and and all sorts of things and so we're actually through those activities and through our own fear um increasing the likelihood that somebody might do something or might do something again and so you know we're we're actually contributing in some ways to you know creating more victims just getting home from work yes sir no actually hey guys i um no i was off at uh, quarter after two today so a little bit earlier this is where circles of support and accountability come in cosa as it's called is a crucial and rare link to the wider community made up of volunteers and professionals who, as the name suggests, offer both support and accountability to individuals like Chuck for the sake of community safety. Being a core member of COSA um, and having my circle and having regular meetings and, and having a circle of people that, that do honestly care for me and they want the best for me, and they it's the accountability piece that I need for my life. I need um, to always have people looking out for me and always um, be on me as far as my, my weight and my, my health, my lifestyle. And so we're always talking about healthy eating and what to do to what are my short-term goals, my long-term goals and um, my smart goals and um, everything to me with, with COSA just feels right. And it's, um, it's something I'm really drawn to. Um, It's something, it's a program that, um, It feels, to me, it's like being close to God. Some faith traditions find God in peaceful solitude. But for Chuck, who has spent so much of his life feeling alone and despised, God is found in community, in the presence of those who, despite knowing everything he's done, 
accept him, support him, and treat him like a human being. COSA does a, a tremendous job of transi- helping people to transition, helping them to feel, to get to that place where they can feel okay. If we can be okay, then we can get to, you know, that that great feeling hopefully down the road. But they provide a tremendous amount of support and guidance. And, you know, if I go back to, I, I said this earlier, that we all have this innate desire for interpersonal attachment. You know, it's a fundamental human motivation and Circles of Support provides that. I consider it a a tremendous privilege um, to work with COSA. Uh, I oftentimes say that I benefit just as much as, you know, the, the members do. I hope to soon get on my feet again and get back to uh, a job where I can support myself and, um, and live healthy. Um, but this is where COSA really becomes a huge factor for me and in, in my future. They know me really well and they know everything that I've done. They've, there's no secrets and there's just, um, they, when they look at me, they don't see my charges. They don't, they don't see me as a pedophile. They don't see me as a, an offender. They, they see the good in me and they bring that good out of me. I know there's a good person inside me. I know there's, there's a lot of good I can do in this world. I want to thank Chuck for sharing so vulnerably and openly with me. It's been a privilege to hear your story and to see how you are finding a new purpose in life and working hard to make a positive impact in the world. Chuck's hope is that in sharing his story, we can, through confronting tough questions and facing our fears, prevent future victims and create safer and healthier communities for everyone. He also hopes that fewer people have to go through the pain he and his family did. People should not have to offend and be charged in order to find help. To that end, I've included a number of resources in the show notes, and if you or someone you know is struggling with minor attraction or simply have questions, I hope you will pick up the phone and reach out to the professionals listed there, including Andrea Bevan, the therapist who shared with us. There are also resources for survivors and victims of sexual abuse, and it's important to note that our primary guiding principle of restorative justice is to support the needs of victims and the community also. I want to thank Andrea, Rick Powell, and the restorative justice team at MCC, and of course the circle of volunteers who support and hold accountable Chuck and many others like him. I want to thank you too, listener, if you've made it this far. I know this was a challenging story to hear, and not everybody is ready to hear it. If you feel moved to step out in a radical way by volunteering with COSA, you can find more info in the show notes. This episode was produced with help from Cameron Phillips and Kristen Kong. Original music by Brian McMillan. Cover art by Jesse Bergen and mixed by Francois Goudreau. Huge thanks again to our sponsor and community partner, Kindred Credit Union. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please write to us at podcast.mcco.ca. I'd love to hear from you.
Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Ken Ogasawara. Have a great rest of your day.